New Zealand Initiative podcast. I'm delighted today to be joined by Dr. Mark Sheehan. Now, Mark and I worked together for a number of years at the Faculty of Education at Victoria University. Now, Mark is an historian and teacher educator, and for a number of years, he's been thinking about teacher education and the way in which we need to develop it to improve the quality of teaching in our schools. So, welcome, Mark, and let's start with uh, how you came to be involved in teacher education. You were, at the time, I believe, a history teacher at Wellington College. Uh, Tanakwe, Michael, and it's good to be here. Yes, I've primarily been thinking about educational sort of issues and working as a teacher and educator for most of my working life. I've just recently retired. Um, and I guess I worked as a primary teacher training at Wellington College Education back in the mid-1970s and then travelled overseas and then went and worked in galleries and museums as a educator. I guess that's where I started to get this sort of passionate interest in, in history. And then I became a secondary history teacher. So I taught at Mana College in Porirua and at Wellington Girls College just around the corner and at Wellington College where I was head of history. And then at that stage I had done a lot of the things I wanted to do in teaching, including writing textbooks and I was also a writer. I read a lot of magazine articles and book reviews and things like that. And I was becoming increasingly interested in the sorts of things that need to happen when teachers learn how to be teachers mm-hmm. uh, and that the importance of what teacher education is. And I guess my concern is because I think if you start teachers into a, with a sort of protocols and ways of teaching and thinking about what should be happening in the classroom at an early stage, then they, that becomes embedded. It becomes part of that sort of what we call tacit knowledge that will inform them as teachers as they go through their career. And of course, they'll improve and they'll learn all sorts of other things. But I think those fundamentals, those basics are actually really important to get. So I then went up to what was then College of Education. And then a short time after that, it merged into Victoria, which changed the nature of teacher education, if you talked about in your report. It was pretty much not too long after that that I met you and we worked together. We wrote books together and articles and research data and did all those sorts of things. And that pretty much followed through to a couple of years ago until I retired, although I still actually write and think about these sorts of issues. Yeah. So you you were uh, present through that transition of the the teachers' colleges into the universities. And that that took place, what, between the late 1990s and mid-2000s, all of the the old teachers' colleges were one by one merged into universities. So... What was that like, and how did the character of, of teacher education change? Um, well, I guess I guess the f- important thing to say is I was present during that time and was involved in that process, is that the initial alignment with teacher education with universities had come out of the shambolic process of what teacher education had turned into in the 90s, when it did actually open up to be competitive on a whole range of ways and had multiple providers. And that's very much had a detrimental impact on the consistent quality of teachers. And the response to that coming through the uh, the, the Clark government with Trevor Mallard as Minister of Education, who was a teacher, in fact had trained to be a teacher uh, at much the same time as I did in the mid-70s, was to make the alignment with universities much closer. That was already happening with Waikato and Massey, but the idea was to put teacher education closely aligned to the universities, and this would see a sort of a fertilisation of ideas in all sorts of ways. It wasn't primarily driven by the notion that it should be aligned simply to faculties of education. 
Right. It was seen as a much broader sense of what that would look like for right across the board. It's also important to say this is sort of pre-PBRF or the performance-based fund that you and I are familiar with and some of your listeners will be too. So this is the, (coughs) just for the listeners who aren't, this is the method by which universities are funded for the research output they produce. That's right. And that put intense pressure on academics, and including those in teacher education, to publish in academic journals and right. all and research funding and that went around that. Yes, I and, recall at the time when I started, which was after you, there were still people who had been staff in the old College of Education. That's right. Who had had to do PhDs, you know, in some cases more or less against their will mm. and uh, become active academic researchers, which wasn't necessarily what they set out to do with that's their right. careers. Yeah, and I, that's, that's, that's quite true. And I think <coughs> there was a <coughs> there was a real shift that all our teacher educators would, would write a PhD. And, and some of that, including personally, when I worked with Roger Openshaw and Peter Lynham, was of huge personal benefit. Yeah. And in fact, I had gone up to training college or college of education, as it was then called, because I wanted to write a PhD. I had some particular areas I wanted to write about to do with curriculum that was there. So for some, it was actually, uh, it was quite a good move. And it was in, you know, the university was very supportive for making that happen. But it wasn't necessarily a good fit for mm. all of those teacher educators who were there, who were very fine teacher educators. Exactly. Very much embedded in the classroom yeah. <coughs> and in the community. And, and we lost some of them, it. didn't we, as a result? They, in the end, some very fine teacher educators moved out of the system simply because they couldn't possibly late in their career contemplate <coughs> taking on this new research yep. direction. And I think, too, that you know, as you and I have often talked about, when there's a, a new initiative that is brought into, into fruition, that there's often very little patience for those people who don't follow it. The, so I don't... Program. <clears throat> yeah. So who, did, who didn't simply fit. And I think there were some really fine teacher educators that, that didn't see it as being a good fit for them and mm. left. And I think we were the poorer for that. So I guess the, the mergers were motivated by a few things. I've, I've read about a desire to improve the professional standing of, te- of teachers. You alluded to the possibility for interdisciplinary collaboration, and you can imagine how that could play out well. You could mm. have all the different subject experts and the, the different faculties of the university feeding into the way in which curriculum is designed for, for schools or the way in which curriculum is approached in teacher education. The idea, I guess, is that also it would become more research-led if it was part of a university. How many of those things actually came to fruition? How many? <coughs> what benefits, if any, do you see accrued from the move? I think there were some substantial benefits that were accrued in, in some of those areas. And it depended on where you work. Primarily, I'm a secondary teacher educator. That's with my area and in history, as you say. And so I guess what studying at that sort of level gave people like me the opportunity to do a significant body of research on how young people learn history as opposed to simply not as an historian. So I guess that's became that's my primary interest as a researcher on the whole notion of what we call historical thinking, which in history is a history is a wonderful vehicle for teaching what we call critical thinking for all sorts of reasons and sense of how the sort of analytical skills you build up. So that created a research base that wasn't there before. Yeah. New knowledge was created, and that was a significant contribution. I'm not sure, I, I guess I would, haven't looked at enough of the data whether that applied right across the board. I think in the secondary field, the sort of work I was doing on sort of pedagogical content knowledge was sort of emulated in geography and in science. And, and I think in secondary, which typically doesn't have a strong body of research on learning and teaching, unlike primary teaching, 
that I think that was of significant benefit. Right. I can't comment really about primary because I don't know and I didn't work closely enough in that field to know whether that came through <clears throat> to the same degree that it, that it did in secondary. I don't think there was the degree of cross-fertilisation that was hoped for. I don't. I think there was a dominance of most research being taken, being closely linked to the Faculty of Education, which had a different sort of orientation. That wasn't my impression that was there. But I think we did see one of the... Uh, we did see a lot of much more uh, links to outside funding agencies and, and informing the Ministry of Education and working with the Council for Educational Research for those sorts of places there. So I guess to sum it up, I'd say probably six or one, half a dozen of the other. I think some things went forwards and, and there were certainly some improvements and I think there were some significant shifts that needed to be made when I think when I went up to the College of Education in 2003, uh, there were some substantial things that needed to be addressed and done to make it more in my view, intellectually rigorous right. about what was happening, happening. But whether that happened to the extent it needed to, and whether it happened in the way that actually aligned with what should be happening in a classroom with teachers, is sort of is something I'm not not quite so sure if it happened to the degree that it should have. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I think was a real missed opportunity, and I'd be, I'd be interested in your views on this because I think it goes in the end to the underpinning philosophy mm. of teaching that the faculty of education takes, and I would say probably all of the faculties of education throughout the country. The missed opportunity I'm talking about was the opportunity to engage with psychologists who understand the process of human learning. And when we wrote the report, as, as anyone who's read it will be aware, we, we did a survey of all of the courses associated with teacher education programs in the country. And we found very little focus indeed on that kind of approach to teacher education that there's really no focus on how the human brain learns, which seems to me strange. And yet the philosophy is much more what we might call social constructivist and the idea that young people need to construct knowledge for themselves. Now, I know that you've done a lot of thinking and we've written together about mm. knowledge and the importance of it in the curriculum. What's your feeling about the way in which the acquisition of knowledge learning is a, approached and the philosophy of learning that underpins teacher education in, mm. in these degree programs for teacher education in universities? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good question. And I, I think that in regard to psychology, the first part of your question, and I think you described this yourself as sort of missing in action, that I don't, not sure why that was the case, but that didn't seem to be prominent part of what was actually happening in teacher education. With regarding secondary education, which is, as I say, where I worked in primarily, an enormous amount of what you're doing is actually preparing people to teach a specialist subject. And in that way, as I said before, a lot of the research that was done was done drawing upon psychologists like you know, Shulman and people like that who talked about pedagogical content knowledge, which is primarily informed by a crossover between content, historical, disciplinary thinking and psychology with learning. Yeah. Whether that happened to the degree with primary teachers, I, I couldn't probably comment, but I would probably say as an observer that one of the things that surprised me when I went up to Teachers College was how little theory there was. Right. And which is interesting because the 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 view that is often from outside of teacher education is all theory and no practice. But I think when I went up there, what I found wasn't so much theory, was but was an orthodoxy. And you and I have talked about this, that often the notions about how social constructivism is used or approached is it's approached not as a theoretical construct, the most important, you know, this is the best knowledge we have for now, but 
it's it's more approached in a in a way that cannot be criticised, a doctrinaire sort of a doctrinaire sort of way. And I yeah. think you know because one of the things you and I share, and we've known each other for a long time and played music together and. Uh, hung out a bit and all those sort of things is that we're both sort of even though we disagree we both have that Karl Popper vibe which is basically what's wrong with this idea the whole notion of looking theoretically in Popper of course for, for those listeners who are not aware and probably wrote I think along with um, Hannah Arendt one of the two most important books uh, in the 20th century called The Open Society and Its Enemies which, which I've he, been he wrote here in New Zealand <laughs> he wrote course. it here in, in my hometown in, in, uh, in Christchurch when he was there and he had brought out after during the war escaping from from fascism to be here and wrote about that. And it's something I've been revisiting and reading quite a lot lately uh, in light of the upcoming election. It's mm. quite interesting to think about those questions about what democracy and totalitarianism, all those things are. But that idea of a, of a theory simply being this is, the, this is the best knowledge we have to explain this phenomena at this point in time and to have a, a critical mindset wasn't something that I think was dominant and the sorts of discussions that were had in colleges of education. And I so even when I, I know the critique you've done of social constructivism, I'm not sure if it's a, a fair critique of social constructivism, which is, I think it, it's more in a sense the way social constructivism has been interpreted within colleges of education. I, I think that's a reasonable point, mm. and, and indeed one could write well, probably more than one book on mm. social constructivism if one was to do it justice. Yep. Uh, and so I, th- I think that's right. Yeah. I think and it, I, and yeah. I think, I mean, I think it's not even so much teachers, I think education does have a propensity to swing back and forth. There are particular fads. It's sort of a, so if we think of the, the, the idea of, you know, the, the left brain, right brain sort of fad, I remember 20 odd years ago yeah. <clears throat> that came back about learning styles. Learning styles. <laughs> learning that, styles that was an one, yeah. And yet the original idea for learning styles, the original idea, you know, of coming from Gardner, from where that came from, was not that people were locked into a particular learning style at all. It was much more the sense that people may have a propensity to a certain sort of learning. It didn't mean they didn't have other, but that wasn't the way it was interpreted in schools uh, and it wasn't often the way it was interpreted in colleges of education. So one of the questions, I guess, when we think about where we go forward is that having teachers placed into a position where they're able to be far more critical consumers of research and of ideas and of theories, I think is really important because I think without that, then to some degree teachers are helpless. Yeah, they don't really have. They can either accept or reject. They can't critique and think what's the strong component of this particular interpretation of social constructivism and what doesn't fit. Yeah, and I think we have to be very conscious of that. And I think that's been made substantially worse because of the sort of some of the structural natures which we talked a bit about, which I, I in my blog I write on Substack, in, uh, NZ Educator, that was missing in the report of universities operating very much in a neoliberal framework and on a commercial platform. So if we see universities as, as, as primarily needing to have high numbers because they are funded accordingly to operate as consumers to bring in international students and also very much a pressure to ensure those students actually pass. Right. Um, and it's uh, a customer model, right? You, it's a, it's, you yeah. pay your money, so where's my degree? Yeah, you, I've, I've heard you say that, and I, I couldn't really agree more, I think. And that's, that's to me, as someone in, in my stage of education and where I am in life, there seems to be something that we've seen universities move far more mm. down there. And it's made that connection 
between teacher education and universities is very, very problematic. And I think that's came through with a lot of shortcomings in your report, which I would largely share uh, about a, a range of reasons about the amount of time in the classroom and visiting lecturers, all those sorts of things which you make, uh, which are there. And I think because if you put teaching education into that university model, then the same sorts of pressures will be, which are numbers of students, ensuring students pass, doing PBRF research funding, because that's also a way to, to, to bring uh, money into, a, into the faculty. All of those things are not necessarily fitting with the role of a teacher education programme, which is to prepare teachers for the schooling sector. Yes, it's interesting <coughs> you say that. We, we interviewed Kevin Knight, the mm. director of the New Zealand Graduate School of Education <laughs> recently, and he commented that Actually, apart from the graduate school, the many of the teacher programs don't actually see it as their job to get teachers' classroom ready anymore, that they rely on the initial two-year provisional registration period for a teacher to actually get them up to speed to be in the classroom. Whereas Kevin, you know, he uses this wonderful phrase that teachers must see themselves as causal in learning. I really like that, and 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 he and his fellow teacher educators won't let their uh, their students graduate until they meet a long list of criteria that certify them as being classroom ready. So that that strikes me as a fundamental philosophical difference, which I really didn't appreciate until I talked to Kevin. No, and I, I listened to the interview, and I think that that has a lot to a lot to say to us about. I mean, the idea of what we mean by classroom ready when young teachers go into a classroom. And, it's, you know, there's a other side, but I was sort of thinking about this too. If, if, if teachers are not classroom ready in their first first and second years of teaching, if they're still going through that sort of process, then it, it puts their students at a significant uh, disadvantage. It certainly ready, does. does it? And, as, and worse <laughs> than that, or as bad, not worse, but at least as bad, I think it puts the teachers themselves at yep. a disadvantage. And, of course, we see far too many young people leaving the profession within a few years of starting. Yep. And if you put them in, I mean, it's a bit like putting, I mean, I don't mean to be hyperbolic, it's a bit like putting a soldier in a war zone untrained. Mm. Well, how are they supposed to cope? There's all kinds of social problems that children have that they have to deal with on a daily basis. They're not well versed in classroom management. There's chaotic environments mm. in many classrooms in which children can't learn and teachers can't operate. Yeah. And I think Steph, Stephanie brought that through with one of the, inter I think the interview you did with Kevin of what it means to be a teacher who's not well prepared, what they have to simply fall back on what they knew already or yeah. if they're fortunate as she was you will have some good strong mentors within school which is often the case um, ideally I guess the characteristic for someone I've been in so many different schools and spent so many different environments and teaching is teachers will pretty much make learning happen if they put, do the best they can but my worry coming back to when we originally started talking about why I went to teacher education is I think why it's so important that we need to ensure that teachers are classroom ready before they go into a classroom, is if they don't have that sort of confidence, then intuitively what they'll do is they'll just fall back on what they know already. Yeah. Um, and often they can develop some really unfortunate habits of how they operate that will not serve anyone well during mm -hmm. their teaching time. So I think it is really, I, I would endorse that idea that we need to have student teachers far more thoroughly prepared for the 
core business of teaching. And of course, once I start teaching, they will go out and I'll keep learning. I mean, I've been 45 years in this role and one way or another in teaching, I'm still learning, still reading things and finding out things I had before. That's Mm. all there. But I think it's not dissimilar to some of the debates and talks we have about curriculum. There are some fundamental ways of operating, fundamental knowledge, fundamental dispositions and how we see teachers that need to be thoroughly embedded. And one of the things I did like about the graduate model in Christchurch was that they talk about this idea of being able to demonstrate for something to be fluid, but also to be consistent. So right. it's not enough to just to demonstrate at once when you have your visiting lecturer come, but to actually be able to do that over a period of time. And I think that's uh, that seemed to have been lost somewhere in the mix and how universities have operated and within teacher education and I guess the the fundamental question I think the fundamental question that we have to be always aware of when it comes to think about education and what it is is that we live in a a a highly unequal society when it comes to the sort of educational opportunities that we actually offer students so when we talk about falling literacy rates which are there there are falling literacy rates across the spectrum but those falling literacy rates have far more impact on young people who don't have the social, cultural, economic capital uh, yeah. to be able to make up a short form. As you've talked about before, I mean, we've talked to have this conversation. Now, if you're a young person who grows up in a house with a, where you're used to hearing people debate and talk about ideas, if people you see people reading for pleasure, if you've been exposed to all sorts of different experiences, you've got a significant advantage when we come to literacy as someone who hasn't got those things. And, and the question that we have to ask you is that where do we make that shortfall up? And we make it up in schools. We, got, we absolutely have to. I, I was at a conference a couple of weeks ago and I heard Pasi Salberg give a talk. He, he's a, a very well-known Finnish educational thinker. And he presented an analysis of data that showed that teachers account for about 20% of the variance in, in young people's learning and other school factors account for another 10%. 50%, half the variance is accounted for by socioeconomic factors outside mm. the school. Yeah. And, and so it just shows you what schools are up against when yeah. they're trying to make that difference. And, but, but it also shows you that, that impact that a teacher can have. So absolutely. I think, yeah. And I think that you know one of the things I, I endorse about some of the things that's come through from what you've written and the reports that you've in podcasts you've made is that one of the unfortunate aspects of how social constructivism has been interpreted in colleges of education, with education, is to take away that the role of a teacher is to actually be a teacher. Mm. It is not to be a facilitator. Mm. I mean, you know, for all of those poor student teachers that sat in my classes, I would be always saying to them, you are not a facilitator. You're not a guide on the side. Um, You're actually a teacher. Your job is to actually cause learning and like you say I actually like that phrase too I think it has a it has a lot to a lot to recommend it but it's actually I guess what we need teachers to is to be able to accept and understand their agency in that whole process yeah. and they can make a difference I mean obviously you have disadvantages uh, if you've got all those social problems and we do I mean the concerning thing I guess for me is I trained to be a teacher in the mid-1970s I was um, I had already been working for a few years and spent some time doing some sort of silly chookish like things I guess is my, my, my wonderful mother would have said to me um, when I finally settled down so I was a so-called mature student although I wasn't very mature in lots of ways but we were that was when I started to learn about what we called the gap this massive gap between students who are doing well and students who are not and that was in the 1970s yeah we're still 
haven't addressed that in the way that we need to. And that's not to say we haven't made improvements, not to say the things haven't been done, but we still haven't made those core and had those sort of conversations to see what needs to happen in classrooms. And it's not simply, obviously it's to do with funding, and those are issues are there, but that's, those are, that's the details. It's actually about thinking what sort of qualities do we need teachers to have mm. in schools where there's that sort of uh, disadvantage and how do we support them? And ironically, when you think about it, the, the only time we ever saw that really happening in education was when Hickey Parada was um, Minister of Education and she introduced the exemplary teaching models that became what's called the Masters of Teachers Learning, which yeah. are quite different these days, but it was because they were extra had extra funding. That's right. All of those sort of things happened. And we did see <clears throat> start to see the sorts of changes that teachers could make and a classroom. It doesn't mean, obviously, that there's still not disadvantages, but a teacher can make a massive difference. And the, the thing we have to be aware of, I guess, to say for some students, if that doesn't happen at school, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. And you know, if, if you're talking about literacy and numeracy, for some students, if they don't have a teacher who's that highly skilled and whatever, they'll probably find, even though it won't be ideal, uh, there'll be some other ways they can pick those sorts of things for, up. For many young people, I would say it's, it's the best opportunity to have an influence from a, a well-educated and, and sort of wise adult that yep. is going to come their way. Yep. Yeah, and, yeah. and so it is a tragedy that yeah. so many of our young people come out of school without having had that yeah. experience and certainly not the kind of experience that would overcome the disadvantage that many yeah. of them are, are in. So, I mean, I think we can, we can probably sum up the issue of university teacher education by saying that at least many of its promises were not fulfilled. So if I was to ask you... If you were to be magically made Minister for Education, what, what, what would you do about teacher education? How, how would we move from where we are now to a model in which did produce the, the kinds of teachers who could make this real difference for, for young people? Well, if, if you'd asked me that question 20 years ago, I probably would have said something around similar to saying we should be very much more closely aligned with, with the university sector. I think that, that when Mallard brought that in, the universities were very different beasts. They operated differently. There was much more a different way of operating. I think College of Education did have some things they had to address. If you ask me that now, I think we have to be much more conscious of what the core principle of why we train and educate uh, teachers, and it is so that they can have a important role and agency in addressing the inequitable system we have in education. Now, that to me means they actually need to be spending a lot more time, not just in a classroom, but in a range of classrooms. So, for example, a, a diverse range of classes, classrooms in high decile, low decile schools. For primary teachers, uh, it's absolutely essential that all primary teachers should know how to teach five to seven-year-olds, eight and nine-year-olds, and, and 11 and 12. There's a significant difference between a 12-year-old and a five-year-old. Right. And, and all of them should have a substantial body of time in schools, which means that partly what I'm talking about, I think, in schooling is a bit like John Dewey's idea of the lab, which was sort of a, interpreted in schools, what we call normal schools, where you had schools that typically were close to universities, where students spent a long time in the classroom linked to teacher college lecturers and with uh, teachers, and you talked about the variability of associate with teachers who had the sort of skills and abilities to actually be able to do that. So I would like to see a lot more, a lot closer connections made between 
schooling and theory. And ideally, I guess if I was Minister of Education, I wouldn't have teacher education physically located in a university. Mm. I would actually have it located and funded to be in a, in a school. Yeah. And primarily, I'd probably choose schools that were in what we now call sort of lower socioeconomic areas that would be able to make a contribution there. I think that's where that's where the priority is, and that's where we need that to do. And I think I'd yeah. like to see, I'd like to see. I mean, I've just I've just um, been doing some visiting my students at for University of Canterbury, and uh, I had the opportunity. Which was different to what I was used to, where I saw those students teaching. I had a built up a good strong relationship, and then I went back and saw them teaching three or four weeks later. So the feedback I'd given them all of that, they I could see if there had been a progression. And I also had access to all of their files and portfolios and reflections and social reports. And then ultimately through that, we look at the how the practicum will be will, will go forward. And so that sense, even at that short term sense of being exposed to being in a classroom with the same student yeah. over a substantial period of time was significant. And I think we we do need to ask ourselves the question Is the teaching community well served by having teacher educators send a substantial body of their time doing research that is away from the classroom? Because as you and I have talked about as well, one of the unfortunate things I always remember as someone who, especially as a researcher who's interested in how people learn, is that when work plans were done within the university sector, one of the first areas that were often pulled out was visiting students yes because outside contractors could be brought in to do that with a and I again think it's those financial <coughs> drivers having perverse outcomes for what you're trying to do yeah that puts it really well if you put into that neoliberal sort of notion of how universities operate commercial op- uh, then that's exactly what we're saying what's the best commercial outcome here or we can bring a contractor in to do that whereas that was that's i mean it's anybody outside thinking that is just missing the fundamental idea of how we learn to be a teacher. And I don't mean for a minute, and I think you've said this before, and I made a good point about this, I don't, I don't mean that it's <clears throat> simply teachers that should be training. Teach, I think teacher educators mm. and theorists and research-informed people need to be closely involved, but they should be closely involved within the school setting. And for that, I guess, when you, I'd say one of the things that we've talked a lot about and we haven't agreed on is that, and I wrote in the substack, my substack block, which is actually there, is that I don't think the way forward is to go down that track of, of competition or among a, a multiple providers. And I don't think that because, not simply for education, but I think there's some areas that we in New Zealand are facing that we're just simply not having the big debates about them. And we've seen this with this election. I, I can't remember ever being in an election as someone who's a relatively politically aware person, where it's had so many people say they don't know who to vote for. Mm. Um, and I think that the idea where we have multiple providers who think about the standards and come up with different sets of standards or multiple providers who are offering particular programs, school-based or whatever, misses the fact that what we actually need to do is to have those conversations. So we should be having the conversation where a set of standards saying, are these six standards fit for purpose? And it shouldn't be something that is sort of optional for people to opt into. We say, well, no, we might think it's something that we need to make that decision as a community, as a teaching community, as a educational community, but also as a wider community about what are the core things that people actually need Mm. uh, to actually have in those standards. And I think much the same when I look at the question of multiple providers, my worry there, much as, you know, to some degree it's what happened with tomorrow's schools where there will be providers and there are schools right now, as you and I could name off the top of our head, probably 20 schools that would be fantastic at doing this, that serve 
well-connected, affluent, high social capital communities who could actually make all those sorts of connections happen. But my worry, as I said before, what drives me education is what does that do about the questions of inequality? I mean, I How think they, you... these are, are real problems. You know, I, I did think these through and, and just to defend our recommendations for a minute. So one of the things that I really grappled with, and I was tempted at one point to just say, let's take control of the teacher education, uh, the teacher professional standards. Mm-hmm. But then one of the issues with that is that then they come under political control. If you have a minister who says, I'm going to do some work with some experts and figure out what professional standards we need for teachers and just mandate them, you open the door for political interference forevermore in in the professional standards for teachers. Now, I also take your point about competition and also the unlevel playing field uh, mm. that could be seen to be the, to the advantage of, of schools with lots of resources in affluent communities and, and so on. So I do think that one thing that we could do is really put in place a lot of incentives for those schools that do have a lot of resources to get involved with schools that don't. I mean, very often they're not natural competitors because they're dealing with very different communities and different geographical areas. And I would like to see much more cross-fertilisation. And one thing that encourages me in that regard is that this, we write about this in the report, there's a group of schools in Auckland that was led initially by very affluent schools, but now involves schools in South Auckland as well. And that was because the ministry gave them some funding, the Ministry of Education gave them some funding in order to bring that about. Mm. So I think there is a, a way to overcome some of these problems that you're rightly identifying and in the end I would like to see teachers have control of their own profession but you've got a chicken and egg problem because we're at the moment and I hate to say it's such a parlous state that it's hard to see how if we just maintain the status quo it's going to improve. We can't maintain the status quo. Oh, we can't maintain the status quo. And, and I mean, I would share that view that, that, I mean, I think there's there's no, those barriers that I highlight are not barriers that are unassailable. We can make those sort of connections. And you and I have talked about that before. And we've, you know, we've looked at particular schools that have that sort of capital that they're more than willing to share and to contribute there. It does take funding and it takes commitment. And it also takes, you know, the ideas of collaboration and cooperativeness that, that haven't been encouraged. I mean, like you know, we've talked before, it's a slight aside. It's a bit like in a university sector. We now have a university sector that competes with other universities, which is... It has a finally absurd side to it because when I see universities from different cities coming down to other cities and, and whatever competing, I have to think, you know, the difference between a BA and a BSc from Canterbury or Auckland or Wellington or Mass, it's all pretty much the same. So they're not actually competing. Or, or, or if it's not the same, you've got no way of knowing from their advertisements. <laughs> <laughs> so I, and I, and I think that's, that's my, it's not so much I'm thinking competition won't work because it's competition. It's more competition, we have to be very cautious of what it is and we have to have some parameters built in for ensuring that um, those that fundamental question of I mean I would I guess I'd you know I would love to live in a in a country where one day we would just have a minister of education who had enough confidence and ability and knowledge to, to look in the face of a camera and say, by the time every young person is twelve years old, they will be literate and numerate. And and have that be true. 
Yeah, and and, so, and we're not not going to do this and the other side of that, whatever. Just saying, this is what we was that. And what, I mean, you've talked about this a lot too. And I guess when I'm saying we talk about teacher education, what it should look like is I think, and we've actually one of the things we haven't seemed to get right is to understand what's the core business of teacher education. I once worked with a wonderful um, principal at Wellington Girls College with Margaret McLeod, who was quite a phenomenal leader. And she used to talk about this idea of core business. Mm. What's your core business? And the core business in a schooling system is primarily literacy and numeracy and discipline knowledge, those sorts of things that allow young people to be socially mobile, to make their own independent thoughts about that. And sadly, and I think partly in a broader sense, I think there's people who are pushing back on that for all sorts of really disturbing reasons. Yeah. And I was sort of, when I listened to the uh, podcast about reading and sort of heard about you know notions of reading being somehow a tool of colonisation and all those sorts of things which are there. And I'm thinking we have to be clear enough as a society as to what that core business is so we know what it is. And I don't think in education we're very good at it. I'm not sure if we're very good at it, lots of things, but I think in part of the problem is that often people who are making those decisions are, are not well-versed in the business of education. They simply just haven't hit the books. They haven't read enough. They haven't spent enough time doing what you did and going down and visiting the um, graduate school in Christchurch of actually doing the walking the ground and seeing what's actually happening mm. about how do we fix this complex problem and what's the priority. Yeah. Because we've seemed to have gone down a track in teacher education and in, in education where rather than have those hard conversations, that's partly why I push back against I'm saying about the competition, rather than have the conversation say, this is what all young people need to have, we've said, oh, okay, we'll let you let you, you can make your own call. You can make your own choice. Yeah. Uh, and that ultimately not only is a cop-out from where I'm standing, but ultimately it also keeps the status quo. It gives significant advantage to those uh, schools that have that sort of cultural capital and economic social capital to not make those sort of connections. Yeah. I think we have to incentivize that. I think one of the, the models of simply, you know, if I think about, we, I've taught in some of those high DSL schools, I've taught in low DSL schools. People in high DSL schools are incredibly busy. Yep. They have a huge amount to do. So there has to be some support and incentives to see those sorts of things happen. But it's definitely doable yeah. if we actually have the conversation about what the priorities are. Yeah. Look, Mark, I could talk to you all day uh, about this, and, uh, but we'll be told off if we make the podcast too much longer. So, look, it's been terrific conversation. And as always, good to compare ideas and identify points of agreement and disagreement and thrash some of that out and and no doubt we'll, we'll talk again in, in due course so thank thanks you for Michael joining us. it was a, such a pleasure to be here and I really enjoyed talking with you cheers, cheers.